Welcome to the Hobby of a Lifestyle podcast, a show that looks at how our passions impact lives and drive career choices. I'm Andy Gray, a former national and world champion kickboxer. During my shows, I'll be talking with athletes, coaches, fans and more as I delve into their world to find out what inspired them on their journey. Welcome back to another episode of Hobby of a Lifestyle and it's good to be back. I've been so fortunate during the break that I've spoke and interviewed some fantastic people and I don't know about you but I've absolutely loved the Paralympic Games along with the Olympic Games but this was phenomenal and today's guest is an just inspiring young lady. Tully Kearney has went on to achieve absolutely amazing things and I'm so pleased that I get to share her story with you so let's find out the whole story. Morning Tully, welcome to Hobby of a Lifestyle, how are you today? Thank you, no I'm good thanks. Excellent. Tully, do you just want to tell listeners what you are certainly best known for, certainly at the moment? So I'm a para swimmer and I've just got back from Tokyo. So it's weird, but I can now call myself a Paralympian and a Paralympic champion. Wow. Congratulations. Absolutely phenomenal. I mean, how does that feel to be called, be able to call yourself a Paralympic champion? It's just insane. I I started my journey to the Paralympic Games a long time ago and it's been 10 years of international competition and my one goal was to be able to actually call myself a Paralympian and I finally achieved that but actually to be able to say I'm a Paralympic champion as well is just crazy. Yeah, it's absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal. So we go, because I've I've read a little bit about your journey, but if we go back very to the beginning, if you want to just tell listeners and what what is your disability? Yeah, so I was born with cerebral palsy, spastic diplegia. Um, so that affects my legs and also um I have weakness on my left side. Okay. Um so obviously I have like really tight and stiff muscles and I find it hard to move. And when I was about 13, I started getting different symptoms that weren't typical for cerebral palsy. And at 16, I was diagnosed with generalized dystonia, which right. is a involuntary movement disorder and that affects pretty much my whole body now it's got a lot worse over the years but one thing that a lot of people don't know is that um, a massive percentage of the cerebral palsy community actually have dystonia as well but because they can be so similar most of the time it's never diagnosed right okay well I mean so if we're going back as a child then I mean you look at you, you talk about that but at the same time, you're a Paralympic champion. So if we kind of go back, how did it affect you growing up? So when I was younger, it's actually how I got into swimming was I always wanted to do everything my brother would. I've got an older brother who's able-bodied and I was always trying to keep up and being that annoying little sister trying to copy him and doing everything. And with all the land-based uh, sports, I just couldn't keep up. I just couldn't do it. Um, just physically, I wasn't capable. And he started um, training at a young age at a pool and just a local pool down the road. And I used to sit and watch him most evenings uh, with my mum watching him train. And one day, I think when I was about eight, the coach came up and asked if I wanted to join in. Um, and at first, my mum was like, hmm, like it's very overprotective of me. He wasn't really sure. As mum um, But she let me try it and I just absolutely fell in love with it. It... I like finally found something where I was I felt like a level playing field I could keep up with kids my age it was something that I could actually do that my brother did and I didn't feel disabled I wasn't treated as a disabled kid I was treated 
the same as everyone else. And it just, the water just became my freedom and my way of getting out my frustrations over my disability and over my physical limitations. So it just kind of became my coping mechanism to swim. Right. And when you say that, did you did you feel quite angry when you were a child growing up? Um, not really sure if anger is the right word, but I think I was just frustrated that I couldn't, that I wasn't like everyone else, so that I couldn't keep up. Um, so yeah, I think it, it was more frustrations and also, um, I mean, obviously there, there was a limit to it, but sw- swimming actually was helping my symptoms, helping um, spasms and the pain in my legs. Right. It was helping loosen them. So it actually did help with my disability, but then yeah. if I did too much training, then it had the opposite effect. But, as well, yeah. Yeah, but at a, a good level, it was actually helping. And I think I wouldn't have been as mobile as I was all those years without that level of training. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So as an eight-year-old, you've discovered swimming. You were almost, you know, you've seen you're, you're on a level playing field now. Was it straight into a swimming club that you went into as well and then sort of from there just started competing or was it a case of at eight years old you said your mother's been overprotective were you able to swim at eight years old um yeah so I joined the club that my brother was part of just a local um swimming club down the road and um she was very protective so until I was I think about 10 or 11 I was only allowed to do 30 minutes a week right and all the other kids were doing like three or four one hour sessions a week so I was doing a lot less but actually I think that helped me in the long term because all the kids at my at that age that were doing way more actually retired from the sport way earlier. So yeah. I actually think slowly building me into the sport has actually kept me going all these years. I suppose you do see a lot of children who kind of almost overtrain as a child and then sicken yeah. themselves with a hobby and because they fall all over it very early on because they've done it for so much. It's, it's a good way that you've been. So you know, yeah, you see, it's it's probably been a positive thing that you kind of incrementally grew into the sport when was it then how old were you when you thought or when somebody thought Tully you have a real a real talent for this sport um so I think when I was 13 um 13 14 I got in 2011 I got classified for the first time in parasport um and that was the first time we'd really gone into like the parasport circle and at that first competition I actually had one of the GB coaches come up to me and talk to me and I was immediately put on a talent program wow um so obviously that was a bit of a shock and we were like okay but I don't think it really sunk in until later that year I was picked for my first international which is the German Open in Berlin okay and um and then I realized how close I actually was to qualifying for the European Championships at that age and obviously I think it's a I do think looking back, it's a good thing that I didn't go to meet that that early because I think I was just too young and immature. But the fact that I was that close, so close to the time of qualifying and I hadn't been in like the Paris circle that long and I hadn't obviously been training to a high level very like for very long. Um, so I think that kind of gave us a bit of, oh, okay, this, you know, this could be an option. But I don't think I was ever thinking... I'd actually made the Paralympic Games. I think I was just like, oh, you know, I could go to Europeans potentially. <laughs> Wasn't really thinking about the That's games it. at that point. Still, as you said, you, you're still so young and you, hit, you can be hid from those sort of things and you've got no expectations. You just, yeah, European chat. And you, I think when you're that age, you're probably almost thinking, well, I just get to travel around. It'll be quite cool. Maybe you don't think yeah. about the grandeur of the whole, the whole event. So it's probably nice that you're quite naive to the whole thing at that age. But you do see so many swimmers now are so young when they're going to sort of these big events. Yeah. And yeah, then- no, it, 
it is really nice to see um, some so young. But yeah, it's it, I mean it's crazy. And even the Olympics, some some of the Olympians were so young, like 13, 14, 15. and yeah. it's yeah, it's just it's just crazy. Like the I know for me at that age, I'd have really struggled. So it's crazy to see people perform so well at that age. Yeah, it's it's mind-boggling. I totally agree. The mentality they have is phenomenal. So you've just missed out on a, on a major major European event. What was the next stage from that? Did that kind of push you to know that you were so close, even though you were still so young? Um, I think it. I don't think I'd really like had time to actually for anything to sink in. I don't think I really realised like where I was and like how quick I was at that point. I think I was just like enjoying swimming, joining on camps and competitions yeah. abroad. I mean, did the 2012 Paralympics really spark something for you as well, with that being a home games? Um, yeah, well, I think it did, but it was also slightly difficult. So I was actually expected to qualify um, for the games. And at the trials, um, I got a shoulder injury. And that actually ended up being um, the first time I was told I'd never swim again, which at like 16 was like 15, 16 was just crazy. Yeah. So, um, How yeah, I think I was actually 15 at that point. So, yeah, it, that that was crazy. And obviously, that, that, in 2012, there were quite a lot of young swimmers that I knew that I was on programmes with um, in 2012. But also, I do think, looking back, I do think that was the right. Obviously, it would have been amazing to go to London, but I do think that was the right decision. Instead, I was put on the Paralympic Inspiration Programme. Right. So we actually got to go into the village, uh, look at the food hall, uh, had workshops and we got to go watch like um individual sports because it was loads of sports like together um so I still got an experience um which obviously was um great and I got to watch Ellie Simmons win the 400 freestyle and got to watch some some of my teammates actually win win medals which was really cool in some of the sessions we were watching and so she has probably been the 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 inspiration for uh, the you know she's almost the poster girl as well isn't she for yeah like swimming in the in awesome. Britain I actually and went to the same school as Ellie right so we we live in the same village when I I think when I was like six or seven we moved um from Aldershot to Aldridge and that's what Ellie's like hometown so we ended right. up living in the same village and going to the same school wow so using some pretty amazing athletes yeah <laughs> that's that's phenomenal what was it like when you told them you seen there about the shoulder and I'd read about the shoulder and you saying that it could potentially stop me from swimming ever again how does that feel to, to to be so close to qualifying for a Paralympic Games to being told you might never swim again um yeah that I think I think that age I was obviously I was disappointed but at that age I wasn't willing to accept that I was like no you're wrong but I just wouldn't I think part of it was denial but part of it was like you know like this can't be it like I'll find a way basically so how did you go about putting putting that right almost and and showing the doctors they were wrong um so I was really lucky at that point because I was on funding um you get booth coverage you can go and see like the private doctors like the best um in like sports medicine so um, once she see a shoulder surgeon, no, I actually thought that I'd need extensive shoulder surgery. Um, and then I did work with his physios and physios back at the English Institute of Sport back in Birmingham. And I basically did what they said, did a bit more rehab and just, um, I mean, it was, 
it was kind of good in a way because it gave him that period like when you're an elite athlete you don't get time especially swimming you have to train so much that you don't get time off you get a week or two weeks off the major meet and that's it and then you, you're training the whole rest of the year so you don't get time you get a few days off for Christmas but you don't get time to have surgeries or do it especially when you've got something like several holes you don't get time to fix the little issues that you'd like to fix so it did give me time to um tried like Botox and serial casting to get my feet in better positions so in that way it was a bonus because while I was doing rehab and land-based stuff I could also try and um, improve my leg function um, but no yeah it was it was a difficult time but I went to the, the sessions that I'd normally be training because I was at boarding school at this point right. um, so I was already in the venue anyway the pool was just down the road it was part of the school right. so I just went to every single session and just did my rehab like every session did it back in uh boarding house did it on the weekends and somehow I just managed to avoid surgery managed to get back in the pool after I think, about 14 weeks That's what, did you have to miss any major tournaments apart I know like you talked about the Paralympics and uh, that was unfortunate but was there any of the major events that you had to miss because of the injury um not not at that time no I obviously like I missed the, the little things but I managed to get back the next year um and race in April, which was the trials, and I actually qualified for the World Championships in 2013. So, um, yeah, so about a year later, I was then back to where I wanted to be. How good, what's it feel like when you all, when you become a funded athlete? You know, let's be honest, that is probably most most young person's dream when they who love sport growing up, they want to be a professional athlete, regardless of what the sport is. What's it like for being so young and for you to then be a funded athlete where you're kind of getting paid to go around the world and, and do what it is you love doing? Um, it is pretty cool. I think mean, up until 2013, I was on in I wasn't on much. It's not like like it didn't cover and like all training costs and stuff. Obviously at that age, like um, but no, it, I mean it was cool. It was cool because we could afford. Um, the preparation suits I could afford like the goals like racing suits have got more expensive every year and I didn't actually wear um, a fast skin until I got given them in 2011 but after that it was kind of the expectation that you will wear an Athena proof suit you won't just wear one of the cheap ones that's still like stitched together like you actually need a fast skin so it was things like being able to buy those being able to buy like goggles and goggles are so expensive now it's crazy Um, and just like the proper equipment and be able to stay at um, hotels closer to um, the major competitions so we didn't have to travel as far and stuff. stuff just It just made things like that a lot easier. But yeah, no, it was it was pretty crazy and I just absolutely loved going on uh, training camps abroad and things. It was just, yeah. Yeah, it sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean, You're talking about the fast skin, is the difference huge? Um, I think if you're wearing like a baggy training costume, I think, yeah. Right. But... I think this is kind of like a controversial thing. So, I mean, obviously there is going to be some difference. However, for me, unless I was swimming like 50 metres, which obviously like the finishes are generally very close. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I, th- I think because of the issues I've still got, um, I actually have a racing, racing suit in my size and racing suits in size bigger. So if I'm having like a bad day or a bad shoulder day or in pain, I wear the size bigger. So for me, wearing a size too big doesn't really make, I mean, there's not that much difference between two sizes, to be honest. But yeah, me personally, I don't care if it's a little bit baggy. 
Yeah, I, just for just for me personally, for not being obviously swimming like a brick, I just thought it would be interesting to find out whether or not that you know the, the the suit that you're talking about, and then just the the normal suit that anyone could buy in the shop. Mm-hmm. How much different? I mean, obviously it makes a difference. I'm sure the science behind it is in there, but I, I just thought I would ask the question. Yeah, there's definitely a difference between like a random off-the-shelf training costume and a fastskin. It's extra. Well, but if you wear them like correctly, they're extremely tight. Um, mm-hmm. And they're not, so they're single line, but it's not um, stretchy fabric like a um, training costume. It's not got stitching in. It's like heated seams. Okay. So it's a very different, quite a, depending on which one you get, some of them are quite rough. Um, they're not stretchy at all. They're very, mm-hmm. some of them are very stiff, depending on how much compression's in them. Because this is the thing, like for, it took me a while to figure out which ones work for me because some had so many, so much compression of the legs that my legs would spasm. So, right. It really depends on what your condition is and what you want out of the suit versus what what is actually what works for you. It's so interesting, and I genuinely am interested about that, especially when you talk about your condition as well and how it can be affected just by a suit that you have to wear to swim in. It's like it's it, it's probably something that I would never imagine that putting on a swimming costume uh, would be. You know, would have all this stuff that you got to think about. It's it's crazy. It's really yeah. thanks for sharing that. I think for me, it's the worst part about being a swimmer because getting them on and off, especially getting them on, it takes so long. It's just horrible. I just, yeah, yeah. not fun. No, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't sound fun. Just the fact that you have to pick all the different ones as well, make sure that it's the right one. And yeah, it, it, I honestly had no idea. That's, that's fantastic. That. Anyway, let's move away from the fast skin. Let's go over. So you said you qualified for the 2013 World Championships. Yep. How'd that go? So that was interesting. And I think this was why I was glad that um, my first meet wasn't, like my first proper international meet wasn't the Paralympic Games because I had a lot of um, learning to do. <laughs> I think at that point I was a very fussy eater and we were staying in a massive hotel with loads of countries. So it was actually in uh, Montreal in Canada, which was really cool. Yeah, but the... So the food was limited because they did a buffet for like all the countries. So it was kind of a mix of what all the countries would eat. Right. Um, so the first week we were there, like um, we were there, I think about 10 days before racing, just to acclimatize. And that first week we were there, I barely ate anything. I lost like seven kilos. So as like a skinny 16 year old to lose that much was, yeah, that, that wasn't my best idea. And I did actually end up swimming really well on the first day in the 400 meters and winning a bronze. And it was funny because my family back at home had stayed up until 3am to watch it on the Channel 4 coverage, but obviously no one thought I'd win a medal, so they didn't show it. Oh, never. (laughs) They just showed the medal, so already. Just watched everything else. Yeah, so that was quite funny. But um, after that, I obviously swam terribly because I had no energy. I didn't have any energy left because I wasn't eating properly. So I think that was definitely a good learning experience. To Also, I I was so overwhelmed with everyone and it was weird because the under the rules for the IPC the International Paralympic Committee all of our swimming events have to be indoors we're not allowed any outdoors for the parasite so the pools were two outdoor pools and they were kind of like one was uh, they were kind of parallel to each other so the competition pool was behind and the other one was the opposite direction um just uh probably like 100 meters from it so what they did was they put a tent over the competition pool like a massive like tent 
fine. But the sides weren't covered, so if you're swimming backstroke or like breathing to that side, you could, like you get blinded by the sun. And then the warm up and swim down pool was completely outdoors. So when there was thunder and lightning, we weren't allowed to swim. <laughs> so it was definitely like an experience. And yeah, our team good. area was like little tents on the poolside. Really? Wow. Yeah. I suppose they can't all be glitz and glamour. I suppose it's it's you know it's a good message to send to people who might want to follow in your footsteps. You know, it's not always going to be world class facilities. It's sometimes going to be. No way, you have to do it outside and put a tent over the top. Yeah, it, I think that was like, I think that is one of my most favourite uh, meets. That just It was just so cool, so unusual. Um, and it was my first time, obviously, getting to see everyone from all different countries and speak to other athletes. And I think I was just like so overwhelmed. Yeah, well, I mean, it's still phenomenal to come back with a bronze medal and for being so yeah. overwhelmed. I mean, what, what was the reaction like back home and from family and friends when you come back and go, the third best in the world? Yeah, I think it was it was crazy. Like everyone was um, so supportive, and I think a lot of people were like surprised, but also like so happy for me because it was it was a very close race between uh, me, the girl that came fifth, and the girl that came sixth. Right. So it was kind of like I think well, I think my family knew that it was going for bronze like before the race. It was going to be between us three, but right. obviously we didn't know what way it would um, happen. So, I mean, what were you happy with the bronze medal at the World Championships, being sixteen years old and? And so young and naive, as he, as you've already said, or were you yeah. disappointed? I was absolutely delighted. I, mean, I was like the happiest I've ever been to get a medal. <laughs> but the because the the class I was in at that point, I was the lowest level impairment, so the most impaired athlete uh, as an S10. So um, that was obviously before my condition started to get um, as well as it did with the dystonia. So I was, I think I was. 10 seconds behind the lady who came first and five seconds behind uh, the lady who came second. So th- they, those two were just absolutely killing it and just winning everything and they were so fast. So I think as well, like the fact that I was so far behind and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing because I just knew that they were just going to be the ones at the top of the class that were going to win everything. Yeah, I think it's all right is if you kind of know, isn't it? Yeah, I, I know you've seen, I've seen so many the GB team for both the Olympics and Paralympics being so disappointed with getting bronze and silver medals over yeah. the game, which I think is fantastic because obviously they went there to get a gold medal and they're, they're you know naturally disappointed. It's when you come back and reflect, but I think if you know already the margins are so so wide, then they get a bronze medals. Like what a phenomenal achievement! Did it, did it motivate you to want to push on further, or were you kind of sat there and I was a sixteen year old going, okay, I got a bronze medal, I'm the third best in the world. Uh, or was was the aim from there then okay how do I make five seconds up how do I make 10 seconds up yeah I think I think like a lot of athletes I wasn't like obviously I was happy and I was like absolutely delighted to get a medal at that point but I wasn't finished yet like I wanted to to just keep pushing and see how far I could go and also with the my other events that I didn't swim very well and just to I think at that point at that age you're still trying to figure out what is your best event and I swam I think five or six different events so I used to swim pretty much everything so I was still trying to figure out what what I was good at um what I wasn't good at and what was actually worth focusing on in training I love that I love that was it you or was it the coach who who then kind of streamlined you and said okay Tully this is what I feel you're best at or was it a case of working together and saying well no actually I think this is my favorite event and I think that I could do better with this if I just dedicate more time to it um 
I think really at that at that point it was all coach driven. Um I had a really good coach at um Bowman Swimming Club and he worked with me a lot and obviously we had the GB coaches being on a program, you had a home program uh, liaison officer that would come and um like one of the coaches would just come and check in and we did um well back then it was called log sheets. So basically I'd put my week of training um on a piece of paper, get my coach to sign it and then email it every week. Right, yeah, you wouldn't do that now, would you? <laughs> it's all online now, now. Yeah, texts on phones and everything, isn't it now? Yeah. What? So what? What was the progression after the 2013 World Championships? Because I can imagine you're getting ready for the start Olympic cycles. Um. Yeah. An Olympic cycle. Um. I think at that point I wasn't really focusing too much on that. Um. I think that still happened later on, but so 2014 was a bit of a straight year for me. So. It was the Commonwealth Games, and since I think since 2013, the trials for able-bodied and para they used to be at the same time. So in 2012, they were at the same, like the same venue at the same time. But since 2013, they decided to separate it. So we'd have it at a different venue, or we'd have it at a different like later on. Nice. Um, so what they did was for the Commonwealth Games, the trials are in Glasgow at the pool, and the able-bodied meet. Um, was in before ours and then there was a two-year gap and then army started so on the last two days there's only a couple of events um that para athletes can do so they pick there's like um i was really lucky that my class was picked and it was an event that i was actually good in but it wasn't my best event at that point it was a 200 im right. so i think i knew that i'd have to do something amazing to qualify so i didn't i didn't think we didn't think that i was definitely like, actually going to qualify but i thought oh this would be cool if i did I think I was on a short list, but it wasn't like a, oh, this, I'm expecting this person to qualify. I was like, oh, maybe she will, maybe she won't. Because yeah. I'd have had to do a really big PB and beat the other GB girl. So it was a big ask. And um, so I got to um, trials. I swam really well, did a PB, obviously didn't qualify, but swam so well. And I was really happy with myself. And then in that like two, three day period, um, I got a virus and was quite ill. And I swam terribly at the Paris trials, which were literally in the same venue just a few days later. Mm. And normally they did accept a medical appeal, especially that I'd swam that like a few days earlier, swam so well at the same um, venue as well. And for some reason they refused to accept any medical appeals in 2014. So I wasn't, I didn't go to Europeans um, and I didn't even get to nationals because there was an issue with entry. So I actually had to go to the Welsh nationals mm. um, in Swansea that year. So, yeah, it was, um, I think it was a straight year and it was kind of at that point, well, you know, like I've been to a world championship, should I just give up now? Is it, is it worth carrying on? But for me, the routine of training is what, what I thrived off. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, I think I'd have struggled at that point to, to not train. I think that's, that's just what kept me going, kept me from the frustrations of, uh, my condition. The Sonia was slowly starting to get worse. Um, so I was kind. Of, I think that's kind of what was like. No, like this. This is what I do. Like I'm not going to give up. And obviously, decided to carry on. Um, obviously, I think my funding got cut a little bit because I didn't make the team. I was still on funding, but not not as much as I'd been before. Mm-hmm. So obviously, makes things a little bit difficult. But I was still living at home at that point. I was still doing A levels, so um, I was all right with that. And um, so yeah, then the next year, I decided that. At the end of that year, I was like, I decided that I was going to move to Manchester for university and to train at National Performance Centre. 
So that last year of sixth form, I spent a lot of weekends um, and like the holidays in Manchester training, getting used to the environment, um, getting used to the coaches. And um, I think, I think yeah, at that point, like, obviously moving to High Performance Centre is a massive leap. And I think I was kind of starting to realise that staying in Birmingham with a home club when we didn't have a 50-metre pool just yeah. wasn't really. Um, obviously, we do now, but at that point, there wasn't a 50-metre pool in Birmingham. The closest thing was Loughborough or Coventry. So the I think that kind of like made my decision of like, I need to find somewhere else. And obviously finding, I, mean, I was nervous because I'd never trained with para-athletes before, but um, I'd always been in an a club. And obviously the the whole thing is that in the pool I didn't feel disabled. So I was a bit nervous about oh, like do I want to train with just para swimmers? Yeah. And obviously, because we were all different abilities, all different classifications, I wouldn't have necessarily have a training partner. Yeah. So it was definitely a big like, oh, do I do I take this risk? Do I not? Um, but then staying at home club at home was a risk. So it was just um yeah, it was a difficult decision. But anyway, I managed to qualify for the World Champs in 2015. And I moved to Manchester I think a month before the championship so I think like as soon as I finished my A-levels I went straight to Manchester for like the month leading up um I actually got a shoulder injury (laughs) and um yeah so it was the other side but yeah so um but managed to get through stone injections so that was good and it was funny because when I got there I actually hadn't qualified in an individual event I got picked for the relay And then I think two weeks before the World Champs started, we went to the Scottish, um, it was like a Scottish Open or something at at the pool in Glasgow, because it was in Glasgow, which was really cool. And um, I actually swam the 100 metres butterfly and broke the European record. So I was the first ever S9 swimmer to swim under 110 for a 100 fly, which was in Europe. So that was pretty cool. Um, But I I don't think I'd still like clicked on like I was... I was just finding it difficult and thinking, oh, I shouldn't be here. Like, I've not qualified. There was only, like, 14 of us on the team. So it was, like, a really, really small team. And I was just feeling a bit rubbish. And then we had, um, obviously, like, relays, and I was on the relay team. And then athletes were saying, oh, you should withdraw from your individual event because, you know, you need to you need to swim well for the relay. And I was just like, I'm, I'm not withdrawing from my individual event because I had a chance of getting a medal. I was like, that's not going to happen. And then the coach pulled me aside and was like, you do realise it was like not to put pressure on you but you do realize you could come away as like the highest middle earner and I looked at him and I was like don't be stupid <laughs> um so obviously like he had that faith in me um yeah. and knew it like and he's just been really good he's still my coach now and he's really good at just knowing what to say knowing how to get me in the right zone calm me down um and yeah he was right I went on to win four golds a silver and a bronze yeah. so that I think that's when it really hit me and I was like okay like obviously a year out from Paralympic Games and I was like this is actually I think that was the first time it was like well this is actually something that's on the cards for me like I could actually medal at games and this would be crazy um I think before I just kind of felt like I wasn't really like keeping up with what was happening I was just doing it and enjoying it but I wasn't really thinking oh like we were because I know that I went I, I did I did a European championships for my sport in 2002 and, and I was shocking. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It was, as you say, naive going into the first event, international tournament, totally naive. But then I went to the world championships a year later and I got a, a silver medal at the world championships. And I almost kind of just 
settled for it. I was at the time I was really upset, but when I came back and relaxed and and, and thought about it, I was like, you can tell people you're the second best at something in the world. Yeah. And I found it very easy then to to just to, to train and rather than competing. I wasn't really that bothered about competing. I would dip in and dip out. And it wasn't until maybe four or five years, five, four or five years later for me personally, where I decided to really take it serious again. And we were you maybe in a little bit of that point where you've got a bronze medal and you yeah, okay, I'm, I've enjoyed it. I've I've got a world championship medal. And was that the turning point for you again to go, actually, okay, really now I need to to knuckle down. I can see there could be some some glory here. Yeah, I think I think, yeah, I think um in for me, I absolutely love training. I do love racing. Um, I am a natural racer, which I'm I'm very lucky that I have that ability. Um, as soon as I get behind the block, it just kind of switches. Uh, it's like an automatic switch. So I am very lucky that I have that because I know not many athletes do, and yeah. they they struggle with getting in that right mindset. And I think it's all these years of training and practice, but I've always loved, absolutely loved training, always been a really good trainer. So um yeah, I think. I think at that point I start I stopped doing as many meets because when you're really young you can like do an open meet every weekend it just gets ridiculous and then you've got like the arena leagues which is where you like you're not competing individually you're competing to win team like points for the team yeah, yeah. so and then you've got obviously the individual um like actual competitions and it's just yeah it just gets it gets crazy so I think at that point I died down everything so obviously you get to a certain age as well and you're not like ten anymore you can't just go and do loads of things so. Um, yeah I think and also I think the disappointment of 2014 I was like oh I don't think this is going to happen for me and then obviously the turning point um, which is crazy but the funny thing is actually well I did enjoy the 100 fly because it was such a close race it was so close only one but I like like I think now like it was t- like a tiny margin and I loved that I love the adrenaline rush I got from that but um, I think apart from that one of my favourite moments was actually the silver which was on the 100 backstroke and it was because there were a uh, woman who won Ellie Cole from Australia is an absolutely incredible athlete. And I just looked up to her completely. And she, like many, many years ago, she had a reconstructive surgery on both shoulders. So she'd been through tough times. Um, and she was just starting to come back at that point. And um, yeah, it was just for me to be on the podium with such an amazing athlete. I was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, almost starstruck. Yeah. Uh, what a, wow. Phenomenal. So 2015... 2016 was real. What happened mm. with that one then? Um, so with the injury that I'd swam through in 2015 um, with steroid injections, it just, I kept struggling and it just kept kept um, coming back, kept getting injured. And it got to the point where I think it was February, it started to get really bad. Um, and I just could not get rid of this injury. And unfortunately with a condition like dystonia, um, trauma can trigger a progression in it. So right. there's many different things that can, but I think the trauma of having an injury that long, um, there's also a lot of stuff going on at the centre. Um, the, I mean, the, eventually it took many years, but the coach did eventually get um, sacked because of intimidation and bullying claims. And yeah, it was it was a really bad environment, really stressful. Um, and I think like all the stress, um, the stress of worrying about if I was going to go to Rio, like I couldn't go to trials. I was picked as a wild card, but I was still like, can't even swim like how am I supposed to be competing and um all this stress and it was just it got to a point where um so my dystonia decided to react I couldn't lift either arm above shoulder height uh I was in like really bad pain I had nerve pain like all the time and um 
I was just I was just completely I was just like barely moved not even to like function as a normal human being like everyday life like even because um I was living in one of the summer flats I was living like independently and um even to function and um do like everyday things I was just struggling like it was it was not not a good situation and eventually I think two weeks before I had to withdraw which was obviously heartbreaking just gonna say um, how do you deal with you know kind of that the way you, you've now realized this is a real opportunity for me to you know go to the power mm-hmm. games potentially medal if not win and then for that to be kind of taken away is how, how do you do that as a young person one and, and then as an athlete athlete who's so competitive I think it was really difficult because I lost my place at the centre I lost my funding um, so I literally everything that I knew gone and obviously I was in Manchester I'd already done a year at uni so I couldn't I was stuck in Manchester now couldn't couldn't leave um, so I was just like what the hell am I going to do um, obviously I had to I think the biggest thing for me was how much more impaired I was. My um, my ability was way worse. I was struggling with shoulders. Like I was, I just had to relearn a way for me to do everything. I had to now deal with chronic pain. Um, so it took me a very long time to come to terms with that. And obviously I was frustrated. I was um, quite angry and grouchy because I was just in so much pain all the time. And obviously trying to deal with this, um, I had, I was actually, um, with one of the other athletes at the centre and he went to the games. Um, so obviously I felt like I had to support him, but also that was also heartbreaking that I should have been there with him and having to watch the races on TV um, was horrible. And then um, obviously like my mum was still watching the racing and the times for my races, they were one in times slower than what I did the year before. Yeah. So obviously that was, that was just heartbreaking. I was just like... I think at, at that point I was also told like I'd never swim again. So I was just like, that that was my chance. I'm never going to be able to go to Paralympics. Like this is a terrible way to end your swimming career. Like no one ever wants to end it like this. And I was also thinking like, what am I going to do now? Like, what am I going to do with all these 30 hours that I'm not training? But also physically, can I, can I live alone? Can I finish my uni course? Like, can, am I even physically capable of doing the, the course I'm doing at uni? Um, like with the jobs that I was potentially thinking of, am I now physically capable to do those? So it was all like, um, everything was just up in the air. Everything was crazy. And I was now thinking like, what am I going to do with my life? Like what, what now basically? Do you know when you're talking about everything that like, you know, I can't even begin to imagine, but your funding's being cut. Is there still support there from the British Paralympic team then? You know, because that's a, that could be a very, very slippery slope but you know you could spiral quickly even just from not from a physical point of view but from a mental health point of view as well mm-hmm. like, like mm-hmm. how have your dream taken away kind of through injury and then losing yeah. funding as well wow I think normally like nowadays there would be good help um back then with the coach who was not very nice um he controlled everything so he controlled the psychologists controlled everyone so uh, basically um, I was told they didn't trust me. They didn't want to train me. All this stuff kicked me out the center. Nothing had like nothing. So you get um, like I think you get two or three months of like they don't just take you completely off funding. I think you get two or three months where they gradually take you off and then it's nothing. Um, I'm really luckily for me. You get um, I think it was three months. You get at the English Institute of Sport. So I had three months of the physio and doctor trying to do everything they could to help me um, until that was taken away. Um, but yeah, no, honestly, like you just, um, 
you just kind of get left. And I think at that point, I, I was completely in denial, but at that point it had already been picked up by the soft tissue therapist at the Institute of Sport and written in my notes um, from like, I think around April time, um, that they noticed like my mood was really low and that they were, um, were really worried about me and that they, like they wrote in my notes and they wanted British women to, you know, check if I was okay and things. And, and that never happened. But I also think at that time, um, I was in complete denial. <laughs> the team doctor said to me, uh, well, why didn't you tell us if you were struggling? And I was like, well, you know, I, I did. I, at that point, I still, I was still in complete denial. I was like, I'm not depressed. Like, don't, don't be silly. Right. Um, and also I was told by a psychologist at that time who was very friendly with the coach that it was all in my head. My uh, difficult um, relationship with this coach was all my fault and I was being stupid. Basically, man up. That That's basically what I was told. So when you're told that, it it kind of, yeah. It's worrying, isn't it, when it's, this is the elite for our country, you know, for the nation, that, that's the elite and that is the, the yeah, it's it's scary. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, I am glad to say that it is much better now. A lot of the staff members were changed. Um, so it is a much better environment and that that wouldn't happen now. So that's that's really good news because I'm not the only one I have to. There's a lot of people that were affected by that. Um how do a lot of people up? that are in a worse place than I were. Well, yeah, um, yeah. But how do you pick yourself up from that when you've been told you're never going to swim again? You, you know, you have had fun and taken away from yourself. You, without maybe realizing it, but your mental health's been affected. But I mean, did you just want to give up, or was it very much a case of still not? I just love competing and I love swimming, and there's got um, to be a way out of this. At that point, for about a year, I didn't even think about it. Yeah, I just. So that's not an option anymore. I'll move on, basically. That's what I was thinking. And then it got to the point where um, my mum was trying to convince me to get back in the pool. Not, not to be, she didn't want me to be a sw- swimmer again. She just wanted me to know that I could. And at that point, I was like, well, I'd rather not. Because I thought, well, if I try and fail and realise I can't swim, I'm going to be more devastated. So I'd rather just never get in a pool again, which, I mean, not very practical. <laughs> like, if you want to go on holiday or like swim in the sea or whatever. But um at that point, I was like, no, I don't want to do it. And so my mum was actually a national swimmer. She was a breaststroker. Right. Um, and she never wanted either of me and my brother to be swimmers, but it just kind of happened. She just wanted us to learn so that we could swim in case we fell in like a lake or anything. And then obviously he got into swimming and then I got into swimming. So, um, yeah, she didn't. She knew the dedication it took, so she didn't actually want that for us. But obviously when she realised um, that we loved it, she wasn't going to take that away. Like she wasn't going to not let us. She just didn't really want, because she knew how much dedication um, and sacrifice it took. Um, but yeah, so one of my old coaches started his own master's club. So my mum joined and everyone in the club pretty much were parents of the kids I used to swim with. Right. So it was people that knew really well. Uh, one of the other coaches was a guy that I used to swim with. So I knew everyone really well. It was a tiny group. And I think after about six months of trying to convince me, I finally like gave in and was like, okay, I'll go to the pool. Um, but I think it was, it was really, I was really worried because I was like, well, like, I don't know how I can move in the water. Like I've got really limited range of movement. Um, wasn't really sure what I could do. So it, it took me a long time. Um, I started off in the learn to swim lane and was just trying to figure out what I could do. Um, and eventually, um, I'm, over time, um, with all their support, and honestly, they were so lovely. They, they give me so much encouragement. Um, I finally got back to like 
I, I guess with the point where I could actually swim, I wasn't too quick, but I kind of slowly made my way through the lanes, like up to the fastest lane. And then I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. <laughs> it was an almost kind of like giving yourself physio without realising and just getting back into it. And Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, definitely, and I think that that really helped. One, mental health. Just, did you have to have more surgery on the shoulder, or has it just been a case of the rest and then slowly building back up again? Is is uh, made you be able to more manage that better? Um, so at that point, um, it was kind. It was kind of a thing where the biggest thing I could feel, I couldn't actually feel that I still had joint issues. All I could feel was nerve pain. Yeah. Right. So if I wanted to move, I had to just deal with it. And even if I wasn't moving, but obviously it was worse when I moved. So. Um, there'd be times where I'd got out of the pool and I'd have to sit for like an hour before I like could move because I was just in too much pain. Um, so if I wanted to move and have a normal life, I just had to push through it. And it was kind of one of those things where like I could sit, feel sorry for myself and not do anything and become really lazy. Um, but that's not going to help at all. That's not going to help anyone. I can't just, <laughs> can't just sit in my house all day and not do anything. Um, and also, I think the biggest thing that got me through was there's always someone way worse off than you are. So I think just being grateful and thankful that you're like, you know, um, that you, I was kind of starting to look at the positives. Like I can still move. Like I can, I found a way to swim. Um, and, you know, I still have a life. I've still got uni. I've still got this. Um, so, yeah, just finding my way through that. And also, I think one thing, I mean, it sounds a little bit strange, but one thing that really saved me, so we already had two cats, and my mum was already moaning that we had two cats. Like, you know, like, as parents do, oh, you know, like, we never have another one, like, that's it, like, like we'll never replace them, like, if anything happens to them. And I was just like, okay. She was always really adamant that that was it, like, because she didn't want the second cat. Right. But we got, because they're all rescues, and I showed her this picture, and I was like, oh, but look, he's so cute, he needs a home. And, like, managed to get the second cat. So this was, like, quite a few years later. And I was, um, I've got an amazing friend that I used to swim with. She used to be a swimmer and then moved to athletics because she started to struggle with her shoulders, having Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Um, So she moved to completely different sport um and she lives in Lowestoft so obviously it was quite far away so when I lost everything I finally had time to go and spend time with her so I'd spend like a month with her or like um like get the train down eventually learn to drive and I could drive um see although it's like a five-hour drive and pretty horrendous but it's worth it it's only a 45-minute <laughs> um, journey normally but five hours yeah. until he's driving um <laughs> her brother's a coach so like he also helped me um like did one-on-ones with me in the pool so he'd help me try and figure out um technique and things that would work and overcome like compensate for the things I couldn't do anymore so that was amazing and they had like courses and dogs it was kind of like going to therapy basically like going like on a mental health break I loved it and um yeah it, it was so great and um I think when I when I was there my mom texted me and sent me this picture of this tiny kitten and was like do you want this cat and I was like, I was like looking at my mate, like, what does she mean? I'm like, what is she on about? Um, so one of my mum's um, work colleagues, her husband, uh, worked at like a warehouse and they found these kittens that were like one, two weeks old, like abandoned. And I think they'd been dumped, like they set traps, the, the mum never came back. And um, so they had it, they had a baby at home. So having to, it's literally like having a baby, you have to feed it every three or four hours. Um, and you, you don't, when you're bottle feeding the kitten, you don't know if they're going to survive. So she, I think she realized that I was struggling. So she, um, decided to take it on, which I was like, are you, okay? are you feeling okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and I think at the time I didn't, I, I was just like, okay. Cause she was like, like, you're going to have to wake up every three hours to feed it. And I was like, yeah, okay. Okay. 
But honestly, having that routine and having this little thing to look after that I was fully responsible for, um, it it just, yeah, um, it really saved me. I think it's crazy to say like, oh yeah, this cat saved me. But honestly, like giving me this routine, this schedule and this little thing that was fully reliant on me um, and like all the love, this little tiny bundle, like when we first got him, he, he was like half the size of the palm of my hand. He was so tiny. Um, and having that little thing um, that I had to get out of bed, like I had to, I couldn't just be lazy. Like I had to um, go out and buy it to like formula. Like I had to get out of the house. Um, and that having that little thing that was forcing me to get up and do things was just like that, that really was a turning point for me. Wow. I, well, what a story. There you go. Pet therapy, it's the way forward. It's uh, it's probably happening already. It's probably happening. Um, wow. So was that, you know, was that, as you said, that's a massive turning point. How did you, how do you even get back into swimming competitively when you're dealing with so much pain and, you know, yeah. going through a lot? How do you even begin to get back into to that cycle again? So I started with um, the master squad that I was now part of. I also joined, um, for when I was in uni, like obviously I need to spend some time in Manchester, so I joined City of Manchester Swimming Club, which were absolutely amazing. Right. And it was actually really cool because the coach for the group I was in, uh, which was kind of kind of a weird group, it was masters and kids that didn't want to commit to the training of the squads, but they still wanted to swim. Right. So it was like they didn't want it like for, for the squads that you have to train a certain number of sessions and they didn't want to do it but they still wanted to swim. So it was like a random group of like mixed, like random people. <laughs> uh, and then some of the uni um, swimmers would join that session as well. And um, I re- really enjoyed it, but the coach actually was Matt Walker. He was a para swimmer. And actually he went to um, Worlds in 2013 on the same team. Right. So, and he has cerebral palsy, um, a different type of cerebral palsy, but he does have cerebral palsy. So he had an understanding of what it's like to have a neurological condition. Um and that that was it took us quite a long time to um get to the point where I think at first he just thought like if I had to stop because I was in so much pain, I think he just thought I was being a kid wanting to take a goggle break and mess around. And I think it took a while for us to figure each other out and realize like for him to realize that actually I was doing everything I could. Yeah. Um and but no, so I started doing competitions with the masters like in Birmingham, and then I started with um going to the competitions that City Manchester would go to. And I just started like loving it again because it, it wasn't like I was I think the thing I found difficult to start with was that I went from being in some of the low-level able-bodied meets, I would be like the quickest, so I'd be in the last heat. Yeah. So I went from the last heat to swimming in the first heat, and everyone, including all the eight and nine-year-olds, beat me. Right. So I think it was a bit of a like, oh god, this is embarrassing. <laughs> Especially as like with these people, like a lot of these people know me, knew who I was. Yeah, I don't think the best in the world to Yeah. Get- yeah. So that that was a really difficult thing. And that's something I still struggle with to an extent, but I've got a lot better over the years um, of not being able to swim that quick, not getting the adrenaline rush that I used to because I can't physically swim, like I'm not swimming at the same speed. Um, so it has been a massive adjustment. And obviously I was hoping when I got back to a certain level, I was like, oh, I'm, obviously I wasn't expecting to do like nine or 10 swim sessions a week, but I was hoping to do like six or seven. Yeah. And that just that just doesn't happen. That's just I'm just not able to do that. And I think it was kind of accepting that and also accepting issues with like pain and um injuries and things and it's just I've just got to accept that that's part of who I am and that has taken me a long time I think I am way better now and um 
but yeah, so after that, I decided that I'd, I mean, I was a bit nervous. I was really nervous to see all the British swimming team, the swimmers. And I think I didn't know how people were going to react because they hadn't seen me in so long. Yeah. And I was like, well, um, like, are people going to understand? Because dystonia is not common. Um, there's not many athletes. There's athletes with progressing conditions, but not many that have a massive pr- progression and then come back to the sport with a yeah. much lower classification. So I got reclassified. Um, I went from an S9, which is one of the most abled. So S10 is the most ever physical and S1 is the most severely impaired. I went from a, a nine to a five. So halfway down, isn't it? Like it's yeah. So I went from one of the most able to one of the most disabled. And obviously that's not normal. So people are going to say things. Um, so when I went to the trials, uh, got reclassified, um, and I actually qualified for European championships, which I was not expecting. Um and it was like a shock. And I, I think you can see from my face, I was like, what the hell just happened? Like, this this isn't, this isn't is weird. And I was really nervous to, like, be around the British team again. And I think I'd also, obviously, when you're on funding, there's things that you kind of can't do. They have a lot of say in um, what you do. Obviously, they, they pay you to do a job and they don't want you to do anything that could potentially harm your ability to do that. So, obviously, being off funding, I could do whatever I wanted, which, obviously, to my physical limitations of things. But it was... It was great because I didn't have to ask permission to go to a friend's house. I didn't have to ask permission to try horse riding or, you know. Um, so it was it was amazing, that freedom. So also I was like, oh, God, I'm going to be like, like you know, <laughs> have to be strict on what I can and can't do. And But I was just, I was obviously um, really excited. But then the other side of it, there were a lot of athletes that also, like, obviously didn't realise. And I think at first they were like, what's going on and obviously with in parasport instead of really um doping the biggest thing is classification cheat so uh misrepresenting uh, intentional misrepresentation um basically not performing due best ability in the classification test so that you're put in a lower more impaired class than you actually are which obviously i did not do i would never do that um no, but because it that, yeah but i think because it's unusual and someone thinking, oh, how has she gone from a nine to a five? This what what's happened in like the space of like four, five years. Uh, not even that. So when the last time I was classified as a nine. So yeah, there there was a lot of there's this uh, online magazine that just are really rude. Um and it wasn't just me, there were other athletes that they were talking about and saying um that we were cheats and all this. There were athletes that would just blank me. Um because no. I think over time they're fine now and they realize, but obviously. I understand that isn't a normal thing. And I think I'd be a little bit skeptical if someone randomly dropped that many classes, but. Is it, is it not a normal thing or is it just a lack of education not being around that? Because I, yeah. I would, as someone who does, has absolutely no idea about the condition you have, I would be in absolutely no place to, to comment and say, well, actually. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's the thing. People didn't understand about Estonia or, the, or they were like, um, they hadn't obviously Googled and just thought I had cerebral palsy, which yeah. is a stable condition um obviously your muscles get tighter and it can get worse as you get older but it's the brain the, it's caused by brain damage the brain damage doesn't get worse it's just the physical aspect so your muscles get tighter and then you struggle more um so yeah so i, I think part of it was people just didn't understand stone they didn't didn't even read up about my actual conditions um because also it's not a well-known now there's loads of swimmers with Estonia, which is amazing because we've got representation but that Back then there weren't as many and it wasn't as common for people to keep getting worse and getting cast down. Um, and also people hadn't seen me in like a year, at least a year. So they hadn't seen how much I'd got worse over that time. Um, especially from other countries that hadn't seen me since 2015 to see me at how good I was at Worlds and then now seeing me. In, um, so yeah, I think 
but yeah, obviously that was another thing to deal with and thinking like, is this going to be forever? Like, are people going to like accept me? Like, is it worth carrying on if I have to deal with this all the time? I mean, I didn't get it as worse as the rough leads, um, but obviously it's not nice. No, no, it, it sounds horrendous. And it just, I think it all just goes to, to show what type of person you are, the fact that you've continued and you've actually pushed to make that GB team again, because I can imagine there's a lot of people would have just went, I don't need this now. I, you know, I've, I've, got yeah. life, I've got freedom and I can manage myself and it's not what I want, but clearly you're very competitive and that Paralympic Games wasn't going to get away. Yeah, well, at that point, I still wasn't really thinking about the Games. I think it was, um, I went to the European Champs that year. Um, I got a golden bronze, so that was incredible. Um, but at that point, so to deal with the nerve pain and to enable me to, not not really to train, it was mostly to enable me to live a more normal life um, and manage the pain better. I started having nerve blocks um, to both shoulders and um, it was actually quite interesting. So they did a, a, a first, they tried one, which is um, basically just like a drug to see if that actually worked. And then I started having a radio pulse frequency. So they actually burn the nerve. Right. Um, and then it grows back and then you have to have again, like three or four months later. But because that really helped with the nerve pain, I then realized I still have a joint issue because I had, once the nerve pain was mostly gone, I was like, oh, actually my joints are really sore. Nice. Um, so I then, um, I was obviously still through the NHS at this point because I wasn't, I'd made the European team, but I wasn't on funding yet. Okay. So through the NHS, I managed to get an appointment to see um, a shoulder specialist. And I was lucky that it was one that I'd actually seen years and years ago, I think in 2015. So he knew me. Um, and knew what it's like to be an athlete had worked with the British women team before and other teams. So, um, so we had like obviously MRI scans and things, and it turned out that I had both bone spurs on my AC joints. So I think three weeks after I got back from Europeans, I had surgery on both sides. Um, and I think at that point I was, once I'd actually gone to Europeans and medals and I was like, Oh, actually like, you know, Tokyo is a possibility now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I kind of thought, well, if I get one side done, then I'm going to have this season that's interrupted, but then I'm going to have to get the other side done. So then I'm going to have the season in Tokyo interrupted. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to have them both done at the same time, which as someone that's a wheelchair user that relies on their other body, that was, that was rough. <laughs> like that first week was so rough because I couldn't, like I was in obviously pain from the surgery. So couldn't, couldn't use either of my arms to push off to get up. That. So it was, yeah, it it was, it was it was a hard decision, but rehabbing them both at the same time was much easier than having to do it once and then having to come back and do it again. So even though like I wouldn't I wouldn't advise it to anyone, oh. but um, especially anyone that's got a lower limb impairment. But it did work. It did work for me. Um, and after that, I think I think this just shows like what dystonia is like and how it reacts because from the pain I was getting from the bone spurs must have triggered something in the dystonia because as soon as I'd had the surgery and had them removed, I had no nerve pain, disappeared completely. So I think the pain of the um, issue was causing the dystonia to, right. to create the nerve pain. Wow. wow. So it was, it's crazy. Yeah. And fantastic that it, it went. With yeah. Surgery. I mean, after that, and there's just a case of building up and getting ready for the, the Paralympics. Um. Well, I mean, it's been quite rocky. There's honestly been so many times where I've wanted to give up because I thought, oh, you know, I've had surgery now, it's fixed the issue. And the surgeon was like, oh, yeah, a month and you'll be back in the pool. 
it took seven months. Um, and even then, I was still getting injured. I think the common thing for me is fix one thing and find another thing. <laughs> so it was like the nerve pain found the joint issue. In and one place, don't they? So yeah. yeah, you've been feeling it in your shoulders, but there's probably been other underlying issues going on somewhere else. Yeah, well, it's all shoulders, so I've got um, issues with my tendons. Right. So it's just like, which obviously tendons are much harder to treat than a joint issue. So it was, yeah, a bit frustrating. But so I struggled a lot with injury. Um, and honestly, it got to the point where I didn't notice at the time, but for the trial, because I got picked as like a wild card for um, Worlds in 2019 because of the trials, I was still injured and I was really struggling and I swam extremely slowly. <laughs> um, and I mean, to be honest, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have swam, but it took me a long time to get over that again. I think that's why I struggled to then be fit enough for um, the worlds. Luckily, they were in September, so they were because they were supposed to be uh, in a different country, and there was an issue, so they were last minute they were put in London. Right. And um, so it did give me like about two months extra, which I was really grateful for because I wouldn't have made it otherwise. <laughs> but right. I'd start. I started to. Um, the dysonia started to affect some of um, like the, my internal organs were so starting to get quite ill and like in hospital. And like, it kind of got to the point where the team didn't think I'd make it. And they were like, apparently contemplating whether to take me or not. And my coach and physio like pushed really hard to, to get me there. Yeah. And I think I've proved them. I hadn't had much training. Um, I went to worlds. I was really nervous. I was like, Oh, what if I don't have a fitness to do 200 meters? Like, so it's always the 200 like, I get nervous about, like, like you know, like, what I have the endurance, like, I'm really nervous. And I actually en- ended up winning all three of my freestyle events. So Phenomenal. I think I think that kind of proved that I don't need as much training as everyone else and yeah. that I've just got a really good, like, race mentality because yeah. <laughs> I honestly don't know how I did that with that little training. <laughs> but how, What's that like coming back and when I'm a triple world champion? That is phenomenal. This is, you know, we said prior to the show about you being just a prolific winner and all you do is win. Are you metal? You know, the journey you've been on, you you know, you've won bronze at World Championships, you've won gold at European, you've broke records, then you've won another World Championships and you've got three gold medals. You know, it's like you haven't really been to an international tournament where you have a medal. That's, that's a prolific winner. Yeah. Well, that's phenomenal. And then Paralympics come up. Mm-hmm. I mean, did you ever think they were going to happen? <laughs> with a delay, um, just I mean, how did that how did that affect training or or even just mentality with them being delayed for a year? Yeah, I think at first I was frustrated because I'd been struggling with injury again, and then just before I think when it locked down, I think we had a week and a half until our trials for that was supposed to be for Tokyo, and I'd finally got to the point where my shoulder was strong enough to start swimming quick again in training. Right. It's finally at the point where I actually felt more comfortable and confident that I could actually qualify. Right. Um, and then they were like, yeah, it's it's like cancel or postpone. And I was like, what? <laughs> but I think I think once I thought I was obviously quite upset on the first day, but once I thought about it, I think I guess I was in a bit of an unusual position that I'd missed out on the games before, but I was the only one that didn't go that would qualified. Right. So I think because it wasn't happening it's not like I had to watch it on TV I didn't have to hear about it I didn't have to see other people swim it in potentially slower times so it wasn't happening for anyone it wasn't just me Um, but then I obviously had to think of like oh is my shoulder going to last like another four years if we have to wait until Paris Um, obviously getting on a bit now and the swimmers generally do have a time limit on their shoulders because swimmers shoulders don't last forever (laughs) you look at people like Rebecca Adlington who retired so young as well Mm. 
and you it's in and as you said, there's people who are 13, 14, 15 winning these events yeah. at both Olympic and Paralympic events. It's, yeah, you almost, I suppose, when you get to like 23, 24, you're starting to think about retirement. Yeah, I think swimming's one of those sports where a lot of people do retire early, but we are seeing uh, like over the years the retirement age is becoming a lot later. And I think that's because of the advances in um, surgeries, medical things like devices that we can yeah. use to help recovery. Um, amount of physios we've got the amount of support and stuff and I think all of that means that athletes generally last longer or avoiding injuries for longer um so yeah but um I think so the main focus for me was when we went into lockdown was thinking right like I get more range of water uh, main range of movement in my shoulders in the water than I do on land so I think it's just the movement of the water helps um helps distract some of those dystonic movements and I, I, it's taken me so many years to get that that I thought if I lose it, I haven't got time to get it back before Tokyo if, it, if it's a year later. So um, I bought a temporary above ground pool that was 13 by six foot, uh, destroyed my mum's garden with it. <laughs> um, so we had it at the bottom of the garden with a bungee and I swam tethered, like in just completely still shallow water because... I love that. And you know what? What is my father-in-law was actually just talking about you the other day. Before I even before, like I, I always said I'm, I, I'm going to reach out, and he had said, "Did he, did he see the young lady who had a bungee cord on? She was swimming in the back garden in a pool." And when I did see it, yes. And then when I told him yesterday, and I said, "Oh, I'm actually speaking to the lady you were talking about, T- T- Tully Kearney." He was like, "You're not." I says, "I am." He says, "That's amazing." He thought it was absolutely phenomenal, just the length you had went to to be able to trip. So I think like not that many swimmers really thought about it or they thought about it too late. So I was one of the first, luckily, to get one. And it was like everything was in stock at that point because everything sold out within days. It was crazy, like the gym equipment. I managed to get a couple of pieces. I had, I do an, um, a sport on the side that I started after I had the surgery for fitness because I can't swim that much anymore. And because I couldn't swim for so long after the surgery, I wanted to find a way to get like to exercise because I'm not very good when I'm not training. Like I like exercising. <laughs> Uh, it just helps clear my mind and I just I love it so yeah um one of the athletes that I was at actually she was an MMU sports scholar um Hannah Dine she's a paracyclist absolutely amazing like lovely girl and she was for a year she was trying to convince me to try this sport called frame running but then it was called race running and I was like I was like okay that sounds cool but you know I'm a swimmer like whatever um and then after the surgery I was like you know what like I'm gonna try it so I messaged her so I'd already, I'd been, I actually went to a taste today from several policy sport like a year before and I tried it and was like, oh, this is really cool. But there was nowhere in Manchester that had the frames. So I was like, oh, well, that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. So um, I kind of gave up. Um, but it was really, it's so cool to be able to use my legs because um, I'm a full-time wheelchair user. So actually be able to walk and run. Yeah, yeah. Me because the frame is basically a three-wheeled frame, like a trike. And you're sat in a bike seat and you're lean forward on a chest plate. So it take, the frame takes all your body weight. Wow. And then you're free to run and you steer it like a bike. So it is like amazing. It's such an amazing piece of kit. And um, so she took me to the track where she leaves her frame. And it happened to be that the Stockport wheelchair racing group were there. Um, and she introduced me to all of them. And I ended up being like, I joined the club and she let me borrow her frame for about a year until mine was made. Because it, it took a very long time to get it made. Because wow. at that point, there were only two companies. Well. Like, yeah, there were only two companies in the world that would make them. And um, so I had to get them shipped to the UK. So it was, it took like about seven months for it to be built. And, um, but yeah, she was so kind, like, let me borrow it. Um, let me take it to competitions. Um, 
So I had during lockdown, uh, I bought um, a treadmill and put the race on the treadmill so that I could run because um, for the first 12 weeks I was shielding. So I was honestly, if I didn't have all that sport equipment, I would have gone like crazy. I think I started to struggle at, like week 10. And then with the pool, because it was so hot that summer, I could just like, when I wasn't training, I could just float and chill. And it was like, I'd, as a kid, I'd always wanted a above ground pool and my brother had as well. My mum always said no. So like, I'd finally got my dream in an above ground pool and I could just chill in it. And like, um, like I think all the neighbours were jealous. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Were you always confident that the, the Olympics would happen or did you think they would just get scrapped completely? Um, I think... As athletes, we were told, um, like British women were like, just ignore what everyone's saying. So obviously in the media, everyone's like, oh, it's not going to go ahead and all this. And um, they were saying, you know, ignore it and train for it. If it doesn't happen, like, you know, at least, at least we're there. And if it does happen, at least you're prepared. So we all just kind of ignored everything that was on social media and just continued as if it was going ahead. And I can imagine the Paralympic Games had probably more chance of being cancelled just because I can imagine so many athletes were having the shield or the bit or classed as vulnerable. Yeah, but I think also because the Olympics were first, if something went seriously wrong, yeah, yeah. Um, then yeah, then then they would also. So there was also the risk of that. But yeah, I think um yeah, definitely I think the British women have definitely been more cautious with the parasite versus the old bodied. What what is it like when you get to go out and you and you literally you've you know you meet up with the British squad and you fly. To, to Tokyo to be part of the Paralympic Games? It, it was crazy. I think at first I was really nervous. After shielding, I was training in, um, just within my training bubble. So there's like 12 of us there maximum. I wasn't going, I didn't go to any shops, didn't go anywhere, didn't meet up with anyone because I just wanted to keep myself as safe as possible. But then also, I didn't want to take the risk of getting COVID and affecting the athlete, the other athletes, because whoever we're laying next to or doing warm, like warm-up and pull-up next to, um, would have to isolate so it was protecting myself mostly but also not ruining anyone else's chance of getting to Tokyo yeah it was such a burden wasn't it on on competitors to to not do that mm. when you get out there we were you out there for the opening ceremony because I know they staggered the, the people that were entering and leaving didn't they but did you have like 48 yeah. hours after um, to leave as well and yeah so I was I was there we were there in the village for it but we weren't allowed to go which, I mean, I was racing on day one anyway, so I didn't, I yeah. wouldn't have wanted to go to it anyway. Um, but I think the biggest thing for me, I was really nervous about getting on the plane with people, um, really nervous about becoming in close contact, um, getting COVID, having to isolate, um, and also being in the village and being around that many people. I was so used to like 12 people. I was like, oh my God, like not used to having to socialise and being around people. It was just, yeah, that was difficult. I, yeah, I can imagine, and I suppose, I suppose the only nice thing that you would have had as a team was that the the measures that were in place would have yeah. n- not a hundred percent, but nearly ensured that COVID didn't make its way to the Paralympic Village. Yeah, I think yeah, that definitely made me feel um, a, a lot, definitely a lot safer. But then we had a bit of a nightmare, and we ended up having a COVID case in our group when we got to Suzuka because we weren't staying in Tokyo. We got um, a coach to Suzuka, so then. I think it was like 11 people at twice late, including two athletes. So obviously that was everyone's worst nightmare. Like most of the coaches, and there was two coaches left that weren't isolating so for 23 swimmers. So it was really challenging, really challenging for the guys, the, like the athletes that were stuck in the room, also the coaches. Um, so yeah, it was it was difficult. Obviously that made me really more nervous. So then 
if I needed help with anything, I decided that then and there that I was only going to pick one staff, one or two staff members to help me. But then obviously I was, those staff members had jobs and they were helping other people. So I just had to like wait, wait until I was like, everyone was like, do you want help? And I was like, no, no, I'm good. <laughs> just just yeah, wait. I need alone. <laughs> Still here. <laughs> so like, oh. so yeah, it was, it was definitely um, like a challenging time for everyone and trying to figure out, um, how two coaches are going to train 23 athletes. Um, but I mean, all of the support staff stepped up, became coaches for the week. And a lot of them actually had to come into the village and they weren't supposed to. So they've had to leave, like, instead of leaving their kids for a week, they left their kids for a month. So it, you know, it was so grateful to them for what they did. They, instead of uh, a morning and afternoon session in the pool, they did two morning and two afternoon sessions so that they could split the swimmers in two. And at least we could get some level of, support from a coach or one sports staff what's it like then when you line up for the Paralympic final and then and then not only line up for it but you win it I think I was quite excited I do get excited about racing I think this is one thing that I struggle with the 200 is that because I've struggled so much with injury um I think this is like I think this is the fourth time I've been injured this season but this one I've had since trials April like I got it a week after trials, which is really annoying, um, and just not been able to shake it. And I was in such a bad place with it that I think literally it's like 18 days before I raced, it was getting worse every single day. I was in so much pain I couldn't swim, and I had to have a steroid injection, which, I mean, was in the plan. that We'd put it off for like three or four months to try and give it the best um, time to work while I was racing. So it won't wear off. So it'd have full of, almost it does last a while, but we wanted it to have the full effects. But I think unfortunately we probably left it about two weeks too late because it it got, if I'd have had it a few weeks earlier, I wouldn't have got to that really bad point. But um obviously it did it did help. And but it obviously made me nervous and I hadn't been able to train very much. And I was thinking, oh God, like, am I am I actually gonna be quick? Am I gonna even make a final? <laughs> like obviously those nerves. And when I got them out on the first day, that first heat. I obviously felt better about it, but my coach was like, you need to swim smart. Don't go out too quick. And yeah, but obviously as an athlete, when you get behind the block, it's so hard to control it. And at 200, I just went out so fast. Um, and I just didn't have the endurance and I completely died. And yeah, that's going to haunt me for a while. But, um, but at 100, I was like, you know what? I'm going to be sensible. I went out slightly slower. The first 50 was actually slightly slower than what I did on the first 50 of the 200. <laughs> And then went and obviously came back in such a quick time. But I think um, I I use music before um, I race to help calm me down. Well, it depends what I need. So I either help it calm me down or like get me rolled up to race, depending on what mood I'm in before it. And um, I have it on right until the very last minute. So I'm just like really happy and really excited to race. Um, and I get behind that block. And I think I think the fact that they weren't spectators there didn't make it feel as but I think I would have struggled more if like it was full, like the stands were like full of people. Uh, Cause it is quite daunting. Like the pool was amazing, but the actual pool, like the ceiling was a bit lower over the, all the pool side. And it was like a spotlight. The lights were so bright. Nice. And then the spectator, spectator seat was a bit higher up than usual. Um, so when you were actually in the pool swimming and breathing, you couldn't actually see it, which right. I think was good because, because they were like empty, just the countries, like yeah. the athletes and staff in, I think it would have been a bit like, you know, disappointing to see it like no one there but um the the spectator seating was like it wasn't dimmed light but it was like not as bright as the pool so it was like you're in a spotlight um 
so yeah it was it was crazy and I, I think at that point I was just like you know what I'm gonna give it everything like I'm gonna go sense one plus 50 but then give it everything um and I was just determined like no one is gonna beat me in this hundred like this is mine yeah it's wow I mean what when you realize you're a Paralympic champion I mean, I mean, I know you said before we even start recording that you, you still hasn't really sunk in. You, you know, mm-hmm. you haven't absorbed it yet. But when you know you've won, when you're there, what what's that feeling like? It was just crazy. Like it, it's weird. Like it didn't even feel like I was at games. Like it was crazy that I could even call myself proud and good at that point. I was just like, this is insane. And and if you saw my reaction when I swam, like I literally hit the wall, turned around, and was like really I've won like what like have I actually won because at that point I didn't know and I was just like it's like is this right like is it is it gone wrong like is, is this actually true and then I saw like the time it went and I was just like how on earth have I swam that quick with the training I've done with the issues with the shoulder because we obviously like we had a plan um of how I was going to get through racing like a pain management plan and then because of the isolation issues it completely went out the window um and we had to use doctors from at Panama's GB um, that weren't our swimming doctor. So it it went out the window. We had to completely change it. And obviously it was a bit frustrating because that's what we planned and I knew that was going to help. So we were using something that wasn't as effective. Instead, we used um, medicated plasters like lidocaine patches. But you can't wear them when you're racing. So it was only as soon as I started moving, um, obviously I was in a lot of pain. So the the first day, the heats took a, the the adrenaline from the heat swim took a lot of pain away. But as I started swimming more, I couldn't get the shoulder pain to settle in between sessions. So I was swimming with a lot of pain. So obviously um, that that was difficult. Um, so like when I got to the end and like, I've, I've, like you know, this is actually like I've, I've actually done it. I've, I've overcome all these things. And I think the thing mostly it was going from my mind was like a gold with a world record is the best thank you you can say to everyone that's helped me. Like there's no better way to thank people. Well, I remember waking up in the morning and I, I was trying to watch as much as I could, but then watching the the kind of what's happened today shows and, and everything. And it was like Tully Kearney, Tully Kearney. And I was like, oh well, let's 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 find out what's you know what's going on. I'd already seen it on like on the news and whatnot. And I was like, that is just phenomenal. And I obviously got to watch the race as well and just thinking um, absolutely amazing. And, and, and making my little girls watch it as well and saying, like, look, have you seen this? What Britain's won another medal? And what I mean, what was your, what was your parents' reaction? Well, I didn't actually know this, but my mum, my brother and his girlfriend were in the Channel 4 studio in Leeds watching it live. So it was really cool because you can see their live reaction. But yeah, I think I think for my mum, like the fact, like my goal has always been to get to Panic Games. So the fact that I'd finally achieved that, um, but then also the fact that, because I think she'd have been happy, she'd have been like over the moon if I'd have just got to a Games and come last because I, I would have reached my goal. Of becoming a Paralympian. I think this is where well, through as well. It's phenomenal. Yeah. I think this is where I split out. I was in two minds because I was like, it's amazing that I've even got here. This is my one aim. And I kept saying, like, after Rio, my aim wasn't medals anymore. It was just to get there and be able to call myself Paralympian. But then in my other and the other head, like the the elite athlete of me is like, I want to win. And when I didn't win that silver, I obviously was disappointed. But then when I reflected and saw the messages from home and how happy my family was, I was like, actually. I'm second in the world, like yeah. who, who like not many people can say that. It's not phenomenal. So I think I then I then realised, and yeah, I think my mum would have been obviously over the moon with any result, but I think yeah, it's 
I think I think my brother was like more shocked than my mum, to be honest. He was like, This is crazy. You <laughs> will uh, triple world champion. She's also a Paralympic champion as well. Yeah. It's pretty special. It's very special. I mean, what's what's the plans for you now then moving forward? Um, so we get we get um time off. So after a games is like the most time you ever get off. Like so we get a month, which is a long time for me, but I'll still be doing um like land based like rehab and stuff. So I still be doing something <laughs> after well, after the I think I probably need like another week off because swimming, like racing at that level and breaking world records with an injury, like my shoulder's still not feeling great to be honest, but still feeling pretty terrible. Yeah. But um so obviously need to sort out because I don't want to be going into a new season with an injury. Yeah. And do you have another Paralympic cycle in you? Is 2024 Paris something that you're looking to, or is it too far away to, to say yet? Um, well, to start with, like before the games, I was kind of like, in, I was just, I wasn't really sure. And I was thinking, mm, like maybe, but then also frame running will be a Paralympic sport in Paris, hopefully. But I don't think I'm ever going to be quick enough in that because I'm obviously naturally talented in the water. I'm not naturally talented on a race runner. So I was just like, mm. um, Potentially, but now now that I've actually been to games, like I've, it's kind of like addictive. Like I want to go again. Now you're a champion as well. Like, go back and defend. Yeah, and I'd, yeah, I think that's the thing. Like a, I want to be able to turn that silver into gold potentially, and also obviously defend um, the title. But then obviously you never know. Three years is a long time, um, especially in para sport with the classifications. People can be classed up, classed down. People can come out of nowhere. Um, so you, you never really know like what's going to happen, but obviously like, I think that's just given me the drive of like, yeah, I, I want to go to another Games and I want to hopefully potentially experience it when we're not in COVID times, hopefully. Yeah, with an audience. I bet you, I, bet, I think an audience would make, I, I would like an audience. I think that would be yeah. absolutely phenomenal. I think like even being able to interact with the countries more, like for example, like, a lot of um, the athletes that I really look up to are Australians, yeah. but because of like the COVID risk, um, they actually had they had the biggest building out of like they had the whole building of like one of the flats. Honestly, it was massive, and they made their own dining hall. So they got food delivered to their accommodation from the dining hall, made their own dining hall, so that the athletes didn't have to mix with anyone else. Wow, which was like amazing. Obviously, keeping them safe um, from close contacts, apart for on the buses and then Yeah, not great for you when you want to go across and meet them and socialize with them. Yeah, no, like I think I got to speak to a couple of people I know from. They had like bench areas outside where they'd eat sometimes. So like if I was like really far away, I was allowed to shout across to them. <laughs> oh really? Wow. It's just yeah, it's been a mad it's been a mad time, hasn't it? Tell me what would be your one piece of advice you would give to somebody who wants to follow in your footsteps, maybe even somebody who has dystonia. I mean, after all, you're gonna be the person that people look up to now as a Paralympic World and European champion. So what what would be your advice to those people? I think for me, like the first thing I really thought of after getting that gold was like, this This is proof to anyone with a normal condition, anyone with dystonia, anyone with a progression condition, or who's just going through tough time injury or otherwise, um, that you can you can still achieve. Like obviously, my dream has always been to make it to Paralympic Games. And yeah, it might look different. I might swim a different class. It might have taken me an extra five years, but I've done it. I've become a Paralympic champion, um, which is well more than what my goal was so I think by looking at my story I think it just proves that there are literally no limitations like the only limitation is literally yourself um and obviously it's take it takes a long time like if you're an athlete it does take a long time to find a coach that you work with well that understands um but 
it's worth it. Like, obviously, I've had really tough times. There's been so many times I've wanted to give up, but I haven't because I haven't achieved my goal. And yeah, I, th- I think if anyone could take anything away from my story, is that yeah, it, it is possible. You just have to a- adapt and overcome, basically, and you can you can still achieve it. What you've been through is absolutely amazing, and I am genuinely humbled to be sat here talking to a Paralympic champion. It's phenomenal. Quick question: Would you rather be a world champion or a Paralympic champion? Definitely. <laughs> because of the grandeur of it. Yeah, and also I think in the eyes of like the general public, it means more. So like if you if you're looking for sponsorship or um anything like that, you honestly as a para athlete it's really difficult. Um because I think most companies would rather sponsor an Olympic athlete because they're more well known. Um which is fair enough, but as a world champion. I honestly couldn't get a single sponsorship. It was really difficult. So I think as a Paralympic champion, I think it sounds better. So I think, so yeah, I think it's in the in the eye of the public and the eye of companies that would potentially be looking to sponsor athletes. I think it, it sounds better, but also it is better. Like for like to actually, obviously the Olympic and Paralympic Games is what every athlete strives towards. Well, Tully, all I can say is thank you so much for going to Hobby of a Lifestyle. I, I, honestly, I'm absolutely over the moon to do a sport with a Paralympic champion who's done so well. Congratulations again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Hobby of a Lifestyle. Stay safe, stay well, and we'll see you next time.